This show is a production of LifeSpring Media and is brought to you in part by gifts from listeners like you. LifeSpring 163, How to Really Follow Jesus. Wow. That's kind of pretentious. <laughs> well, hang in there. Yeah, we got a long show today. It's jam-packed. I have been wanting to do this show for the longest time. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking, what am I going to say? How am I going to do this? How am I going to approach it? Well, today's the day. This is a long one. I think it's going to end up being probably an hour, maybe even longer. Of course, you can look at your player and tell right now how long it ended up being. But there's a lot here, and it's important information, and it's stuff that I really want to share with you. It's stuff that has been on my heart, and it's something that I think... Well, it just might make a difference. So, yeah, it's a pretentious title, but and, and I'm not going to tell you that I have all the answers and I've got you know the entire thing, but this is something that I think we all need to hear. So what is this show called Lifespring all about? Well, Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your age, your sex, or your station in life. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Life Springs about answering that question and the question of how and why the answer can and does affect your life today. What will you find here? Well, you'll find music, conversation, and reasons to believe. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about today, my good friends. Thank you so much for being here to share in the conversation. And so what I want to do is start out with some really great music. Shall we? Here we go.
Yes, He is our refuge and our strength. He is God, and we can be still in His presence. We have no need to fear, and He is worthy of our adoration. Amen. That's Shannon Quintana with Be Still, based on Psalm 46, in case you were wondering. I guess I should tell you who I am. I'm Steve Webb. I'm your host, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining me today. So how was your Easter? To me, Easter is the most wonderful and special and meaningful day of the year, for without the resurrection, there would be no basis for hope of any kind. But because Jesus did conquer death, (laughs) our hope is boundless. The fact that he came out of the tomb on that very first Easter morning proved that he is God. And because he is God and the perfect, sinless sacrifice, well, that he is able to make complete payment for my many sins and yours. That's why, to me, Easter is the most important day of the year. Christmas is indeed special, and the birth was miraculous, but every man that has ever walked the earth was born. (laughs) Only Jesus was raised to life after being dead for three days. Billions have lived. Billions have died. Only one has lived, died, and then lived again eternally, and that one is Jesus. Our church had a very unique service. Uh, Our senior pastor, Steve O'Brien, and our associate pastor, Johnny Diaz, they shared the message, uh, or bringing the Easter message in a really fun way. Steve was uh, John the Beloved, and Johnny was Simon Peter. And after the service, lots of people responded, and so that was really good. And if you want to see that service, you can see at least the teaching part with uh, Steve and Johnny at uh, lifespring.tv course, after church, we went over to my mother-in-law's house, as we always do for every holiday, and we had about 25 or so other family members there for Easter dinner. Um, we took the traditional Easter photo in front of the, uh, Grandma's house, and uh, matter of fact, what I, th- I think what I'll do is I'll post that on Flickr for you to see, well, what the Webb family looked like this Easter, in case you're interested. Uh, let's see. Uh, seems like uh, Leanne might finally be succumbing to that virus that I had last month. Might only be hay fever, but I'm making her go to bed early tonight, and so (laughs) hopefully she will not uh, be fighting with it for four weeks like I have been. Let's get to the main part of what I wanted to talk to you today. I've been reading this book called Unchristian. Have you heard of it? Have you read it? The authors are David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, and the book is the result of three years of interviews and research. I don't want to take time to go into all of their qualifications right now, but I'm very impressed with their backgrounds, and I am, well, I'm, I'm disturbed at their findings. Not that I doubt what they write, because I believe their findings. And because I believe their findings, I am, I'm disturbed. Guys, and I'm talking to Christians right now, we are blowing it. Well, what do you mean, Steve? Blowing it how? Well, a couple of their findings showed that to outsiders, that is, non-believers, and by the way, they, they believe that the, the term outsiders is a better phrase than non-believers. Uh, they think that, that that term is less objectionable than you know the other things that we call non-believers or seekers or what have you. So I'll be using the term outsiders. But to outsiders, the Christian church is infatuated with itself. And they believe that many Christians have lost their heart for those outside the faith. (laughs) Outsiders believe that. Think about that for a minute, folks. How much time do we spend 
within the four walls of our own churches, going to services and Bible studies and meetings and things like that. And how much time do we spend with outsiders? Are we infatuated with ourselves? Are we concerned about our neighbors who haven't yet met the one who gave his life for them? How much time do you think Jesus spent in the temple as opposed to meeting the outsiders? Was he infatuated with the people and the events of the temple? Now, don't get me wrong, please. Jesus did go to temple. We know that. There is value in being at church with other Christ followers. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But if you remember, he spent the vast majority of his time, if we're to judge by what we see in Scripture, with outsiders. As a matter of fact, he got some of his harshest criticism because he spent so much time with outsiders. His heart was, dare I say it, obsessively focused on outsiders. They are why he came to the earth. His heart broke for the outcasts, the unclean, the forgotten. When he lost patience with people, was it for those that the religious would call sinners? No. (laughs) He had no patience for those who considered themselves to be pious, righteous, and put together, for the self-satisfied, smug, and sanctimonious. He didn't rail against the sinners. He railed against the religious. (laughs) Folks, if this is stinging you, please know that this is not my intention. It's not my intention to step on your toes. Listen, I've been in church most of my adult life. If anyone could fit into that last group of the sanctimonious and self-satisfied and smug, it, it would be me. I've been an integral part of nearly every church I've been a part of since I began to believe in Jesus when I was a teenager. So don't think that I'm only stepping on your toes. You should see the bandages on mine. Hang in there with me, though, okay? My intention is not to hurt your feelings, but to help us see ourselves through the eyes of the outsiders so that we might learn how to better reach them. Let's take a look at what outsiders have to say about us. Now, this is based on the studies that these authors, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons, have done. Three years of of research and interviews, okay? So this is not something that that we're just making up. This is based on good, solid data. And by the way, right now I'm talking about outsiders, young Americans uh, ages 16 to 29. The number one thing that they had to say, that outsiders had to say about Christians, was that we are anti-homosexual. And then came judgmental, hypocritical, old-fashioned, too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, boring, not accepting of other faiths, and confusing. Even that last one, 61% of the the people said that. On the number one thing, anti-homosexual, 91% of the outsiders said that was the first thing that came to mind when they thought of Christianity. Is that what Jesus said we were supposed to be known for? Are any one of those things what Jesus said we were supposed to be known for? Of course not. Jesus said that they would know that we're believers because of our love. Golly, did you see love in that list anywhere? No. So those perceptions of us are pretty unflattering. And given that we're supposed to be the representation of Christ, it's pretty sobering. I mean... How are we supposed to bring new souls into the kingdom 
when these are the things that outsiders are saying about us. One of the other things they say about us is that we're hypocrites and and that we don't live the lives that we say they should be living. We're not genuine. We're phonies. And that hurts. It comes out from the research that one of the problems that we have is that we have made some of our very deep Christian truths into little cliched slogans like uh, uh, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven, or hate the sin, love the sinner. Now, while those statements are true, they're, they, they've become trite. And I think part of the reason that, that we've done this is we live in a soundbite world, and so many of us seem to have attention deficit disorder, where the most complex problems are solved in the span of one television show's episode, whether it's a 30-minute or a 60-minute show. And the younger generation isn't even watching those 30- and 60-minute shows anymore anyway. They're watching three-, four-, and five-minute YouTube videos. We've gotten used to distilling some very deep truths down to whatever will fit on a bumper sticker. But life isn't like that, is it? And the Christian message cannot be boiled down like that. And guess what? Outsiders are okay with that. We think that we have to make it quick and simple, that we have to tie it up in a neat little bow and with no loose ends. Let me ask you this. Can you honestly believe that life's problems can be neatly packaged and solved and explained in a neat little package? Do you really have it all figured? This is important. Do you really have it all figured out with no discrepancies or loose ends? Really? Of course not. If you're honest with yourself, you don't have all the answers, and neither do I. And we certainly can't say to an outsider that if he or she would just believe, just like we do, that all their problems will be over. You might say, but Steve, I would never try to tell them that. Well, you say that now, but is that what they're hearing when we feed them some of the cliched, hackneyed phrases that they hear from us? One of the things they hear from Christians is, you have to get saved. I've said it. You've probably said it. And... What is that? Get saved. Look at what we've done with this concept of establishing a deep, meaningful, faith-filled, life-changing relationship with the very creator and sustainer of life, the God of the universe. We've cheapened it by describing it to outsiders as getting saved. And what has it gotten us? Or more importantly, what has it done to these precious people who have thrown up their defenses because of the way the message has been dumped on them? They see people on the street corner yelling at them, Get saved! You're going to go to hell! Again, let's look at what Jesus did. Did he stand on the street corners and yell at the sinners? Did he hold up signs that say, God hates you? You say, well, of course not, Steve. We don't do that either. You're right. I think that most of us would agree that that is not an effective method. Okay, how about this? Did Jesus stand at the temple doors? Did he say, come to the temple and I'll meet you here? We don't have one example of Jesus inviting people to come to temple with him. Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong to come to church, and I'm not saying that it's wrong to invite your friends to come to church with you. Let me be crystal clear. I love being at church, and I love what goes on there. But hear this. This is not the primary place that decisions for following Jesus should be made. The majority of decisions for Christ should not be made at church. It is not your pastor's job to bring your friends to the point of decision. 
It's your job, and it's my job. Where did Jesus do his preaching and his discipling? Did he say, Behold, when you come to my door and knock, I'll answer it and let you in? No. He said, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. I stand at your door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you, and you will eat with me. That's a picture of Jesus going out to the unbeliever, to where he lives, to his very home, to meet him there. Outside of the church walls is where the real life-changing interactions are to take place. We are to take the message of hope, love, and good news out to where the people are. Okay, you say, then what? Do we tell them, get saved? (laughs) Did Jesus? Well, sure, you say. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. True enough. But what did he tell the thief on the cross? Did he make him pray the sinner's prayer? No. What did he tell the rich young ruler? He told him, sell everything.
So what are you saying, Steve? Well, I'm saying that Jesus met each one where their heart needed to be changed. He knew what part of them had the greatest need. With Jesus, because he was God, he knew instantly what each one needed. With Nicodemus, he said that he must be born again because Nicodemus was this learned religious expert who thought he knew all the right answers when it came to matters of God. Jesus said he needed to go back to having the faith of a baby, to be born again, to start over, to admit that he knew nothing, to just believe with a childlike faith. The thief on the cross had nothing but faith in Jesus, and Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't make him jump through any hoops at all. He could see that the man believed, and he was saved. No formula, just faith. With the rich young ruler, Jesus knew that all of that man's faith was in his wealth. So he had to get rid of that and put his faith in Jesus. Now again, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about a loose, easy, willy-nilly approach to faith or the way that we approach God. I'm not talking about a cheap, easy salvation. I know that God gave everything to purchase my salvation and yours, and I do not intend to cheapen that sacrifice. What I am talking about is much more costly for me and for you than what the church has been doing for the past several decades. I'm talking about giving our lives as Christ gave his. Okay, Steve, here you go again, but this time I think you've really gone off the deep end. You expect me to sacrifice my life like Jesus did, like I'm going to hang on a cross or something? No, stay with me. Jesus said, and you could probably quote it with me in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You say, yeah, that was Jesus talking about the fact that he was going to die on the cross for us. Well, Really? That's why I love the fact that the New Testament came to us from the Greek language. That word, life there, when he said lay down his life for his friends, let's take a look at that. In Greek, there are three different words for life. There's bios, zoe, and suke. Bios is, in easy terms, our earthly life, that which we are living, our body. Our body is alive, bios. Zoe is the spiritual life, that is the self-existent life that is in God and which he gives to us spiritually, the spiritual life, Zoe. And then Suke is like the inner life of man, equivalent to the ego, the person or the personality. Put another way, bios is life in its earthly manifestation or life extrinsic. Zoe is life in its principle or life intrinsic, and suke is the seat of the feelings, the desire, the affections, and aversions. So guess which form of the word life is attributed to what Jesus meant when he said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Most of us assume bios. But there you go again, assuming here would be wrong. One should never assume. The Greek word assigned to what Jesus meant there was suke. 
What Jesus was telling us there is that there is no greater love than to subordinate all of our desires and our wants for our friends. So just going out and saying, hey, you need to get saved, is that laying down your life? No. What he meant to say there was that we need to go where they are and meet their needs where they are, whether we feel comfortable doing it or not. Our needs, our egos are not the important thing. If I can humble myself in order that, it, that my friend can find and can meet Jesus, then that is what I must do. Well, what does that look like? Well, it can take many forms, of course, and I'll be talking about uh, one of those in just a few minutes, but I feel fairly certain that it is rarely enough to merely invite a friend to hear our pastor preach, as good as he is. It's not our pastor's job to get our friends and our acquaintances saved. God brought them into our life, not our pastor's life. Here's the bottom line, folks. Outsiders have seen us play Christian club for too long. They've seen us put on the facades, and they know, as do you, that it is just a put-on. We tell them how wonderful it is to be a Christian, but our divorce rate is as bad as theirs is. Our kids are having sex outside of marriage, just like their kids are, and so are some of us. Come on, let's be honest. And some of us don't pay our bills, and some of us can't stand our neighbors, and on and on and on. We are a mess. But of course we are. But that's not the crime. We're human. And humans will never get everything right. The crime is that we say we've got it all together. The crime is that we don't confront and confess the sin in our own lives. But we point at and condemn the sin in the outsiders' lives. That is hypocrisy, my friends. That is what Jesus had no patience for. And that is what the outsiders call us on. And that's why they won't listen to us. Let me be the first to say that I have not conquered sin in my own life. I fall short every stinking day. Some days are better than others, but on the bad days, I am a miserable, wretched failure. Some days I am so ashamed of myself that I barely know what to do, honestly. And this is not false humility. I'm being completely real here. But now listen. I know who my Redeemer is. I know who stands between me and the accuser. I know who's making my case before the Father when the accuser says, look at what that hypocrite Steve Webb just did. Listen to what just came out of his mouth. I know, and I can almost hear Jesus as he says to the Father, forgive him, Father, because my sacrifice covered that. I took that upon myself, Jesus says, and I paid for that action. My blood covers that comment. This is me speaking. I know that even though I fail, and even though the accuser wants to defeat me, and he wants me to beat myself up and take myself out of the game, I know that because I have put my faith in Jesus, I am made clean. Not because I deserve it, or because I am slowly making myself righteous by my own feeble, stupid efforts but because of his great and inexhaustible love. And I am humbled, and I am broken by that realization, while at the same time lifted up and encouraged by the Holy Spirit to get on my feet and follow Jesus' footsteps again, sometimes feeling pretty stable on my feet and sometimes wobbling. But I'm always looking forward with him as my goal. 
I believe that when outsiders see us honestly struggling with the same issues they have and talk honestly about it and how God gives us His strength to make it through, even though we make mistakes sometimes, they'll understand and accept our message to them much more willingly. As a matter of fact, the research bears that out. People in our complex world accept areas of gray much more readily than some of us think. You know, we we have a tendency, especially people my generation, we have a tendency to see things in black and white. There are no gray areas. Well, people today get contradictions, and they're not nearly as bothered by them as one might think. When they see a genuine person honestly confronting life and its diverse options, they're okay with our struggles as long as we're transparent with them. They see right through the bluff, though, when we try to seem like we've got it all together. They don't respect that. So where does that leave us? Well, honestly, I've just barely scratched the surface of what's in this book, but I hope I've made you aware of the fact that we have a real image problem with those outside of the church. They look at us with skepticism and suspicion because we have not been real. If we are to change their perceptions, we have to stop trying to hide behind our masks, and we have to honestly meet them where they are. We do have a wonderful, life-giving message for them, and we know the one who has the answers to the confusion around them. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth of that message has not changed, and it must not change, and it will not change, no matter what you or I do about it. But the way that we deliver that message has to change if we are to have the message be heard. We have to do as Jesus did and get to know people where they live, where they work, and where they play. We have to really care about them, really, without ulterior motives. We have to lay down our lives. Are we up for it? The world is depending on us. There's so much more, and I highly suggest that you get and read this book. It's called Unchristian. The authors are David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And I'll have a link on the show notes page to the book. We know right from wrong. We need change.
I have a proposed list of what should be the things that people think of when they think of Christ followers. First off is love, of course, but here's a list, and this is from the book as well. Once I'm done with this list, then we'll get on to the next topic. But I wanted to share this with you because, you know, I don't want to just create a a vacuum. And so here we go. We should be known for worshiping God intimately and passionately. We should be engaging in spiritual friendships with other believers. That's okay. It's, it's okay to do that. We should be pursuing faith in the context of family. We should be embracing intentional forms of spiritual growth, intentional forms of spiritual growth. We should be serving others. We should be investing time and resources in spiritual pursuits, and we should be having faith-based conversations with outsiders. Those are all good things to, to look forward. These are the passions that should define a Christ follower. All right, to move on, maybe I'm the only one on the planet who didn't know about what was going on in Darfur, but I sort of doubt it. Maybe you don't. I just became aware of the crisis there last week because one of the hosts of the, in the Pod Show Network is there reporting on the goings-on. He's there with a the Christian Relief Organization, and once I heard about how bad things are there, I thought that I need to let you know about it, too, just in case you were ignorant of it like I was. 
There are several websites where you can find information. You know, Google is your, is your friend, but one of those is called uh, SaveDarfur.org, uh, and it is from that website that I got the following information. Sudan is the largest country in Africa. Darfur is in Sudan. Uh, it's located just south of Egypt on the eastern edge of the Sahara Desert. The country's major economic resource is oil, but as in other developing countries with oil, this resource is not being developed to the benefit of the Sudanese people. As much as 70% of Sudan's oil export revenues are used to finance the country's military. Darfur is uh, an area about the size of Texas, and it lies in western Sudan and borders Libya, Chad, and the Central African Republic. It has only the most basic infrastructure and development. The almost 6 million inhabitants of Darfur are among the poorest in Africa. They exist mostly on either uh, subsistence farming or nomadic herding. Even in good times, the Darfuri people face a very harsh and difficult time, and these are not good times in Darfur. The current crisis in Darfur began in 2003. After decades of neglect, drought, oppression, and small-scale conflicts in Darfur, two rebel groups, the Sudanese Liberation Army or Movement and the Justice and Equality Movement, mounted an insurgency against the central government. They wanted to be taken care of. They wanted the government to do something instead of just build their military. They said, we've got problems here and we want the government to help us. We want some infrastructure here. Well, these groups represent agrarian farmers who are mostly non-Arab, black African Muslims from a number of different tribes. The president there is President al-Bashir, and his response was brutal. In seeking to defeat the rebel movements, the government of Sudan increased arms and support to local tribal and other militias, which have come to be known as the Janjaweed. Their members are composed mostly of Arab, black African Muslims who herd cattle, camels, and other livestock. They have, get this, they have wiped out entire villages, destroyed food and water supplies, and systematically murdered, tortured, and raped hundreds of thousands of Darfuris. In previous internal conflicts in the south, center, and east of the country, the Sudanese government also employed the tactic of using proxy militias to attack the civilian populations that have been thought to support insurgencies. These attacks often occur with the direct support of the government of Sudan's armed forces, or at the very least, with their tacit approval. Few have been spared violence, murder, rape, and torture. As one illustration of how Khartoum has waged its war, the Sudanese military paints, get this, they paint many of its attack aircraft white, the same color as UN humanitarian aircraft, which is a violation of international humanitarian law. When a plane approaches, villagers don't know whether it is on a mission to help them or to bomb them, and often it has been the latter. This scorched-earth campaign by the Sudanese government against Darfuri civilians has, through direct violence, disease, and starvation, already claimed as many as 400,000 lives. It has spilled over into neighboring Chad and the Central African Republic. In all, about 2.3 million Darfuris have fled their homes and communities and now reside in a network of internally displaced persons camps in Darfur, with over 200,000 more living in refugee camps in Chad. 
These refugees and IDPs are almost entirely dependent on the United Nations and other humanitarian organizations for their basic needs, food, water, shelter, and health care. I could go on, but you get the idea. It's bad there. And we can do something. While we can't ride over there on a white horse and rescue them, we can write to our politicians. We can send money to support organizations. We can even do something as simple as wearing a wristband that will help elevate awareness. I had no idea. A lot of people don't. Listen, China is one of the Sudanese government's biggest customer of oil, consumer of oil. In addition to that, China's human rights record is atrocious, as you know. We can write to our politicians about dealing with China. And we can stop buying Chinese goods. The point is, if enough people around the world take whatever action they can, each little act will have an additive effect. It will add up and it will make an effect. Brothers and sisters, we are called to help widows and orphans. We are called to help our neighbor. Jesus said that in ministering to the least, we are ministering to him. And when we neglect them, we neglect him. We must not ignore the cries of Darfur. Do the research. Take action. Politics or love Can make you blind or make you see Make you a slave or make you free And only one does it all And it's giving up your life For the ones you hate the most It's giving them your gown When they've taken your clothes It's learning to admit When you've had a hand in setting them up And now Because love is not against the law Love is not against the law, no Love, love, love Are we defending life When we just pick and choose Life's acceptable
That's Derek Webb. I'll have uh, links to all the music on the show today on the show notes page at lifespringmedia.com. I wanted to let you know about a brand new website. It's in beta version that I found. Uh, I forgot even um, who told me about it, but it's called uversion.com. It's youversion.com. And what it is, is it's it's an online Bible, but it's, it's based on community. It's a real web 2.0 type thing. Very, very cool. Um, as you're reading the scripture, you have a place, there's a tab here that uh, you click on that's called community and there's a place that people have put notes and there's uh, some commentary by some well-known bible scholars uh, but you can put notes in your comments about different scriptures and you can see what other people have said there's a tab for my content and you can put in your own notes for your own personal study and you can put links to um, videos or music or what have you there that might relate to a particular scripture. And then there's a tab for my journal, and, and you can journal your own thoughts while you're reading the scriptures. It's very, very cool. There's uh, several different translations available, um, and this is all free. Uh, American Standard Version, Amplified, uh, King James, NIV, and on and on and on. It's very, very cool. You should check it out. It's uversion.com, and like I say, it's free. It's in beta, and uh, they've got lots of great plans. I think there's even a... Um, a plan in the works for them to build community so we could have a LifeSpring version of version that we could all get together and, and share our own notes and our own thoughts on, on different scriptures. So check that out. I want to make a comment on the last show, LifeSpring number 162. If you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to do that, to go back and listen to it, especially if you have uh, been listening to LifeSpring for a long time and, and you missed that one somehow. I encourage you to do that. But I really wanted to thank you so much for your support. The response has been overwhelmingly positive. I've only received one email that was just the tiniest bit lukewarm, but nobody has flamed me. So I'm very encouraged and I'm very thankful. As a matter of fact, many of you said, well, Steve, it's about time. You should have done this a long time ago. We're still a long way from having enough support to make this our full-time work, but like I said, I'm very, very encouraged. I've begun the process of forming a nonprofit religious corporation so that your gifts can be tax-deductible, thanks to a generous gift from one of you. So that's going to be coming according to the timing of government bureaucracies. It doesn't just happen overnight. In the meantime... If you do enjoy the show and would like to support us, there are links that make it very easy to do so at LifespringMedia.com. Any amount is very much appreciated. Oh, and by the way, I've created a special Google group for the financial supporters of LifeSpring Media. Uh, we're going to be doing some very fun things as we go forward. There's not a lot going on there right now because it's just formed, of course. Um, but I formed that group because I wanted to do something special for supporters while keeping all of the content at LifeSpring Media free. So that's what's happening there. Last but not least, I have uh, a list here of humor for lexophiles, and I had to look up that word. What is a lexophile? A lexophile is a lover of words. So here's, uh, here's just some fun stuff as, uh, as we kind of get out of here. I wondered why the baseball was getting bigger, then it hit me. How about this one? Police were called to a daycare center where a three-year-old was resisting arrest. Did you hear about the guy whose whole left side was cut off? He's all right now. Did you know that when the smog lifts in Los Angeles, UCLA, the professor discovered that her theory of earthquakes was on shaky ground. The dead batteries were given out free of charge. A will is a dead giveaway. A chicken crossing the road is 
poultry in motion. And that gal, when she got married, she got a new name and address. The grenade that fell onto the kitchen floor in France resulted in linoleum blown apart. (laughs) A boiled egg is hard to beat, and last but not least, when she saw her first strands of gray hair, she thought she'd die. And so there we have it, my friends. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Kind of corny, but... We had so many serious things that we talked about today. I just had to end on some really cornball humor. Thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Please feel free to write me whenever you want to. Steve.lifespring at gmail.com. Of course, the toll-free listener comment line is 877-433-9091. Thanks so much for being with me today. May God bless you richly. I'm Steve Webb.